Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. The main topics today for Spirit in Action are tyranny and nonviolence. Our guest, Andrew Fiala, is professor of philosophy and also director of the Ethics Center at Cal State Fresno. His new book is Tyranny, From Plato to Trump, Fools, Sycophants, and Citizens. And the big questions are about how we can, first of all, recognize the threat of tyranny and then what we can do to prevent its power over us and our country and how we can preserve our democracy. Andrew Fiala is also the author of a number of other books, including Nonviolence, A Quick Immersion. And we'll do a quick dive into some of the issues related to nonviolence, including as it relates to the current war in the Ukraine. You'll find full, uncut version of this interview on NordenSpiritRadio.org. Thanks go also to another Andrew, Andrew Jansen, for production assistance on today's program. Our guest, Andrew Fiala, joins us via Zoom from Fresno, California. Andrew, I'm so happy to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you for having me on. Looking forward to talking with you. Actually, I kind of wish that you were here in Wisconsin and I was in California, so you could have the snow and I can have your relative warmth, whatever that is. (laughs) Right. But you've lived enough years in Wisconsin, so you understand the local zeitgeist as well. Racine and Green Bay are certainly areas I'm deeply familiar with. How would you describe culture different between Wisconsin and California? Because, by the way, there are more stations carrying my programs in California than in any other state. That's interesting to learn. I used to teach in UW-Green Bay, and I would joke that the diversity there was sort of like Catholic and Lutheran. You know, That's about as diverse as it got up in northeastern Wisconsin and California, it's so different just in terms of the variety of people and their religious traditions and cultural traditions and linguistic traditions. So that's one thing you really notice is, you know, California is a real melting pot and northern Wisconsin is not, (laughs) as you probably know. I mean, there is some diversity up there. I don't want to dismiss all of it, but it's quite different just in terms of the homogeneity of the folks in Wisconsin. Is philosophy and ethics, does that look different on the ground in California than it does in Wisconsin? You know, one example that I really noticed this is with regard to the death penalty, because I teach something about this almost every semester in my ethics class. California has death penalty in the movies, you know, level of electric chair and gas chamber at San Quentin. And people in California kind of take the death penalty for granted as like that would be a normal part of punishment. And in Wisconsin, it didn't appear to me so, because as you know, Wisconsin doesn't have the death penalty and didn't have the death penalty. So that's one example of just depends where you are and what's kind of expected in terms of the legal system and legal structure. That's kind of surprising because you'd think it'd be a little bit inverse because California is reputed to be more liberal. Wisconsin has drifted more conservative. It used to be one of the liberal, insightful gems of the country, I believe, that Minnesota, Massachusetts. But it's surprised that it's kind of switched 
Yeah, well, I think you're right. It's been 20 years since I since I was in Wisconsin, since I lived there. And I've heard from my friends that things have moved in a, a different direction. But part of that thing about the death penalty, I think, just reflects our, the, like the legal system influences the culture and vice versa. And then people's attitudes and expectations reflect that, especially the 18 to 22-year-old college students, right? They're there to learn, and they bring with them their expectations of the world they grew up in. So it's, it is different. And again, back to that diversity issue, you know, where I live in Central California, it's just expected that you're going to meet people that don't have English as a native language, that may wear different headgear based on their religious differences, you know. And I think it was constant, at least again, 20 years ago, that just wasn't the case. There wasn't that much diversity. So children grow up differently in California in terms of what they encounter on the street and in their schools. Well, we have you here today, Andrew, mainly to discuss, I want to spend some of the time talking about nonviolence. You've written a number of books in that area, but your latest book is Tyranny from Plato to Trump, Fools, Sycophants, and Citizens. And I <laughs> I wondered, I, th- I thought maybe just to be palatable, you used citizens there instead of morons, because morons is a problematic word in our language these days. But you're going back to ancient Greece in echoing the tripartite population that we have to deal with. So tyranny. Now, I don't think there's any doubt where you stand. Trump was a would-be tyrant. But I'm going to give you kudos right from the start here that you speak of people who are on that side of the fence with more compassion and understanding and allowance for how they see the world. So first of all, kudos for that. Thank you. It's not easy to do because it is the hyper-partisan atmosphere that we're in. It's easy to get dismissive and insulting to the other folks. And so, again, it's a really good job that you do of that. But there's no doubt where you come down. Donald Trump is a would-be tyrant, but you talk about it both philosophically and historically. You're not a historian necessarily. Did you have a history minor at least? You know, actually I did. Uh, I knew that. I perceived that. (laughs) And when I teach philosophy, I always do it from the standpoint of the history of philosophy. The history matters, really. And it's just part of what I talk about in the book, too, is that the history of tyranny gives us models, a worldview through which we can understand current events. So even the word tyrant has a deep and interesting history, including in our own country. And the word, as you, you, know, you sort of were hinting at this when we started here, the word is polarized and polarizing. So, you know, people disagree about who counts as a tyrant. And often the word just means that guy on the other side who I don't like. So it's, it's a thrown against people that you don't like. And one of the things I was trying to figure out in the book is what really is a tyrant and who really counts as a tyrant? Is there an objective standpoint, right? Is there some truth about tyranny that we can all agree on? Because we disagree, right? And you may remember that Obama was accused of being a tyrant. Abraham Lincoln was accused of being a tyrant and so on and so forth. And of course, Donald Trump was accused of being a tyrant. So part of the effort of the book is to understand the history of tyranny and then try to see whether things in the contemporary world match up with that history. So just historically, who do you think is the strongest in the tendency towards tyranny? 
because none of them actually succeeded in being tyrants, right? We've kept some form of mediocre democracy at the very least in our country. But would you say Donald Trump? Would you say Andrew Jackson, Andrew Johnson, two good candidates, I imagine, for it? Where would you say the most tyrannical has been? So two parts to that question. One is, does this person have power, absolute power? So like one of the key features of for someone to be a tyrant is they have to amass and consolidate power in a way that allows them to do whatever they want with impunity. That's why Trump doesn't count as a tyrant. He was not able to consolidate power in that way. And weirdly enough, it might be Lincoln who actually, I mean, you know, Lincoln declares martial law and, you know, he goes to war against other Americans in order to preserve the union. But the difference with Lincoln is it was supposedly for the good. And most of us, including myself, believe that the anti-slavery cause, the cause of abolition was a good cause. So Lincoln had consolidated power, but he used it for noble purposes. So that's not a tyrant. The second part of the definition of the, you know, the key concept here is that the tyrant is focused on his own pride, self-interest, narcissism, egoism, all of these characteristics. And frankly, I think that's Trump. I think of the people I know about in the American presidency, Trump seems to me to be the most self-interested. It's always about Trump. So how I, I explain it in the book is Trump has a kind of tyrannical personality. You know, it's all about him, but he was not able to consolidate power. So that's why he's not really a tyrant. He's only a would-be tyrant. And this thing about the personality, just if you don't mind me adding a, a note here, it's not only a political problem. It's a problem in families and in businesses. We know people in our own families, in our own business lives, in our communities, where it's all about them. They're egoistic. They're inflamed by pride. They're arrogant selfish. And those are the kind of tyrants in social life. Of course, thank God they don't have power over us. (laughs) But that kind of spiritual or psychological problem, that's really something that I'm quite interested in, how the you know tyrants show up in families and in church communities and community groups in your neighborhood and so on. It's something we all have to pay attention to, even including ourselves, right? The little tyrant in the soul that wants to come out and rule over everyone, you know, that's a problem. Let's get really vulnerable here. Have you ever had a tyrant in your life, personally, someone you had to deal with? It could have been your boss. It could have been someone in your family, whatever. We have more than once, you know. In fact, that's kind of part of the motivating part of this book. And I bet all of your listeners had this moment. You know, you're looking at Donald Trump and you're thinking, oh, my God, that reminds me of (laughs) so-and-so. I'm not going to name these people in my own life, but you know, Trump is one of us. When you look at him piling lie upon lie, when you look at him exaggerating, inflating all these things about his wealth, about his power, about how intelligent he is, we know these people, you know, these people live in our lives. You know, I had these conversations with students and friends and colleagues, and it's like, for the most part, none of those people in our lives ever were in a position like Trump. And that's why it's so alarming, right? Here is your you know, weird neighbor or whoever, who suddenly now is leading the Republican Party and leading our country. And it's alarming because we know those people. (laughs) We know how they behave and we know how they exaggerate and lie. One of the quotes that you bring up that's from, uh, I think, The Art of the Deal says, you can't be too greedy. I'm trying to imagine any president of the United States who had been willing to say that. I can't imagine them. Is there one that would have been in that direction even? 
No, not, I make that argument. I think this is, is unique and unprecedented. And, you know, two recent examples that are worth comparing, George W. Bush and Barack Obama, you know, bipartisan, both of those people were deeply immersed in moral language, in religious traditions. Whatever you think about Bush or Obama, whichever side you are on with, you know, this you know, divide in our country, both of those people used the language of morality in a deep way. Now, I frankly disagreed with some of the Bush policies, including the war in Iraq. I thought that was a moral disaster. But Bush used moral language to defend the war in Iraq, which is interesting and important. You see, I think Trump is different. I don't think Trump has a moral vocabulary. When he talks about value, and I did an analysis of this as the appendix to the book. When he talks about value, it's like real estate value. It's like market value. That's his worldview. That's his brand. You know, he's a, the king of capitalism, right? It's about selling high and, and borrowing money and all this stuff that really is only about making profit. And I don't think there is another president in our history that had that characteristic. So the point of talking about tyranny from Plato to Trump is not to flagellate Donald Trump or his followers. That's not the point. I think the point for us is how to raise up morality, preserve democracy. Those are two really important goals. And so so this is not just an exercise in sadism or something on our parts. <laughs> uh, so I just want to make that clear to all of our listeners I disagree with Donald Trump down the line, everything, and not everything, I'm sure. I'm sure if I talked to him, I could find common ground, too, because I don't think that he's a completely evil person. And yet, I don't know if this is true, but my perception is that all the way from his niece to all of the people who served him in various points in office, people he appointed to be his supporters— they left, and I don't know if it's uniformly everyone, but wow, I was amazed the number of people came out and said, this guy is a louse you can't be trusted. And, you know, Trump goes from one day saying, this is my favorite person in the world, to the next day, this guy is a, a scum. I mean, and he, he would literally do that. I don't know that that's ever been the case for any president. Maybe Nixon came close. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, Nixon comes to mind as a model of another morally flawed, <laughs> tragic person in the White House. So we could do a comparison, Nixon and Trump. But I think what you said about Trump's former teammates, who then, as soon as you know they're out, they basically turn against him. It's a fascinating problem. You know, part of the frame that I talk about in the book is, I mean, I'm going back to Greek tragedy. So that very part of the story is like right out of some kind of Shakespearean Greek tragedy where everyone's got knives out waiting to stab each other in the back. It's frightening and, and unprecedented again. I, I just can't think of examples, uh, recent examples like this. One thought comes to mind in terms of the cast of characters you're talking about. William Barr, the former attorney general, you know, basically said he went on this tour a month or so ago when he had a new book out and he basically said, Trump can't trust him. Guy doesn't know what he's doing. And then he was asked, would you support Trump in the next time around? And he said, yes. That for me is really, really puzzling also. How is it that people who know the man is flawed nonetheless stick by him when it comes to the election? And that's another thought person comes to mind, you know, Lindsey Graham, Ted Cruz, some of these people who Trump beat up on and who actually like were anti-Trump originally 
And then they come along. Next thing you know, they're like the greatest fans of Donald Trump. Again, right out of the tragic tradition, like this seems like ripe for, you know, some, someone's going to write an opera about this. And you could imagine these characters singing their hearts out and then going along with the tyrant at the end of the day. These folks are the ones I call sycophants. These are the suck-ups, the people who are seduced by power and seem to betray their own conscience along the way, right? Like their integrity somehow disappears when the powerful one comes along. They're morally problematic. And again, we know them in our families and businesses, right? It's the suck-up at work who is flattering the boss, right? We know these characters. They exist in our lives. The terminology you're using goes back again to ancient Greece. We're talking about people like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, these people way back, uh, you know, 2,500 years ago or so. You're using their language. And words like sycophants and morons are not used very often. So I was astounded at the number of quotes you pulled up of today's commentators talking about the Trump entourage, where for instance, Michael Cohen said that he was himself a sycophant for Donald Trump, which blew my mind. He, number one, that he knew the word, but number two, that he used it about himself. So talk about those three words, tyrant, sycophant, and morons. You're right. Some of these folks admit that that's exactly where they are, which is fascinating. The real frame of the book is I identify these three characters that occur together. So the problem of tyranny, it's not just one person who takes care of that. It's not just the tyrant. The tyrant can't come to power unless there's a crowd of followers behind him, the mob, the masses. And I use the word moron in a kind of technical sense here. It means blind. Moros in Greek means a blind person. And frankly, it's in some of the Greek literature, it's willfully blind right? Closing your eyes to things that you just don't want to see because you want the world to be a certain way. Again, we all do this. We don't want to see what we don't want to see, you know? The Greek tragedies are full of this accusation. Well, you're blind. No, you're blind. You know, these people accuse each other of being blind. So the tyrant is followed by the masses. And in the middle are these sycophants. These are people who know how to manipulate language. They whisper and gossip and they understand the law, so they're able to kind of belate the legal system a bit in order to bring the tyrant into power. These characters show up throughout the history of our tradition. In fact, Socrates was accused of being a sycophant, and the people who accused him were also accused of being a sycophant. And basically what it meant in those days was someone who manipulated the legal system for their own advantage. And when so you know, Socrates ends up, he's killed by the Athenians, and those people who are bringing charges against him were the kind of people that bring phony lawsuits. Like we, we call them ambulance chasers today, you know, people that know how to manipulate the legal system. And so the gist of this is the tyrant can't come to power without those legal suck up political people. And those people, the sycophants, also help the tyrant to seduce the masses, the mob. And the mob wants to be seduced, kind of, right? They, they, this they is fun. Yeah, it's fun. They love their guy and they want their guy to win. And it's more like a horse race than a, anything involving politics, right? It's like, it's like a Packer game, right? Like, like you're just going to cheer on your team no matter what. And again, we all do this, right? We love to participate in the mob. It's fun, even up to and including violence. And that's where it really gets dangerous. What's your favorite football team? 
Well, the Packers, of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Having lived in Green Bay, I, I'm a Packer fan, tried and true. <laughs> Still, even though, I mean, doesn't in California, doesn't that get you some disrepute? Uh, yeah, you know, but you know, the Packers are one of those teams that transcends the region, right? There are Packers fans across the world. And my son was born in Green Bay. And so we have a deep tie to Green Bay. Aaron Rodgers, you know, we, we like Aaron Rodgers, no matter what, even like the COVID scandal this year with, with Rodgers, like, he's our man, you know what I mean? That's kind of how this works. Well, that's why I brought it up, because I thought the devotion to local teams, whether baseball, football, or whatever, or soccer, uh, football in, in England, the devotion is very much like the morons you're referring to here. And I think it's a very human way of being. We cheer for our team. Our team is not necessarily our interests. I mean, when someone gets paid millions of dollars a year to play football, I don't get enriched by that. My life isn't materially or even spiritually really richer for that. So again, this drive of excitement, there is a mentality though that says that person is us. It's our team. It's our president. Yes. I would say it's about love. It's a strange kind of love that we have for celebrities, for our, you know, our, our champions. And Plato knew this, by the way. When Plato talks about tyranny, it's always in the vicinity of love that the crowd, the mob, the masses, us, we love our champion. We love our guy. And notice then what happens is that critical thinking is set aside because love is love. You know, we, we're just going to stick by this person that we love, even when they abuse us and harm us. So now think about the example of how this shows up in the family with abusive fathers and their wives and their children stand by them despite the abuse. It's psychologically common, I think, for people even to love their abusers. So you notice again now, this is not about Trump and politics. This is about us and the need to understand the power of love and maybe somehow fix it and correct it so that the worst side of love doesn't prevail. You know, there's a different story of love, which is that we should love the good. And even our fathers and our mothers, what we want to love about them is the good in them, not the bad. But sometimes love is broken and misapplied. So really, the solution to there is we know we need a better education about love, about ourselves and our tendency to love. I was somewhat skeptical, and I, I still am, about the suggestion that education will do it. And we can talk about some of the complexities. You deal with them. I, I have to give you, again, kudos for even though you have your ideas, your point of view that you advocate for, you don't dismiss anyone else blankly or any other ideas. I am curious why you go back to ancient Greece. I mean, I guess since you're a philosopher, you have to. But I was a speech communications major. So one of the courses I took was a history of rhetorical thought practice and pedagogy. So, you know, I spent time with the Attic orators and all of that kind of thing. So I have my own bit of immersion in that. And still, why do we go back to ancient Greece to talk about things like democracy? Is it because it was the nascent democracy? Is it because they did it best? Is it because, you know, your first president, George Washington, has got to be one of the top presidents just because he was the first, right? So why go back to ancient Greece? Well, I guess two real obvious reasons. One is they gave us the words. <laughs> so a word like democracy, that has a Greek origin. 
and Plato and Aristotle give us political philosophy. They explain the concepts. And this word tyrant, again, very, very important word for Plato. The second half of Plato's Republic is about tyranny. So Plato gives us the vocabulary. Second part of the answer here is that the founding fathers were also interested in the Greek tradition. So the founders who created our system, they were very interested in reading Greek and Latin philosophy, political philosophy. You could argue that our country is founded on a tradition that does extend all the way back to Aristotle and Plato. And the founders also were very, very worried about tyranny. So they accused King George of being a tyrant. And the American Revolution is justified as a response to tyranny. And they set up the system of government, I argue, in order to prevent tyranny. So the separation of powers and checks and balances, all of that, it's dysfunctional, it's clunky, (laughs) but the main goal is to prevent a tyrant from arising in our country. And I guess last thing about this, you know, just in terms of the importance of the Greeks and, and education, we need models that can help us understand what's going on today. And Greek tragedy and the Greek philosophers, you know, it helps to know that 2,500 years ago, people were worried about the same stuff we're worried about. It can be a little bit, I think, reassuring that people like Trump or your uncle or whoever in your family, that this isn't new. You know, human, human beings have been struggling with these problems for millennia. We should remind everybody who's listening to Spirit in Action today that my guest is Andrew Fiala, and he's a professor of philosophy at Cal State Fresno. He's also the director of the Ethics Center, which is very important. We're talking about his most recent book, Tyranny from Plato to Trump, Fool, Sycophants, and Citizens. We're also going to talk a little bit later about nonviolence, a quick immersion which is only one of the books he's written about nonviolence and pacifism. The Rutledge Handbook of Pacifism and Nonviolence, Bloomsbury Compilation of Political Philosophy, Transformative Pacifism. These are all books that he's been part of. There's also a book called Seeking Common Ground, an Atheist-Theist Dialogue, which he co-authored with Peter Admirand. So he's got a rich assortment of writings Philosophy is at the base because it's about, uh, what's that word mean now? Philosophy? Love of wisdom. Love of wisdom. Who's going to be against philosophy? (laughs) And I want to mention, I've got links to this book that is, again, Tyranny from Plato to Trump and to Andrew Fiala, andrewfiala.com website. I've got them on northernspiritradio.org along with all the links to my guests from this past 16 and a half years I've been doing this program. We're broadcast all across the country. Some 42 stations carry our programs. These are ideas that are still vibrant and important to today's age. And so you can listen to programs going way back the 16 and a half years that Northern Spirit Radio has been here. And that is our website, northernspiritradio.org. On there, find the links, come and post a comment when you visit, and there's a place to donate. Do you support us? You just go under support, click on donate, and that's how we do this, because this program is not supported by corporations or government. And that's important to me, because... I want to serve our listeners. I actually have to be able to have free agency to do that. And when you're serving the government or when you're serving corporations, they've got a vested interest, which drives what you're able to broadcast. I don't have those limitations. So please support us and free us to pursue truth, to have open minds 
and to go bravely where no one has gone before. So please support us at northernspiritradio.org. Andrew Fiala is joining us from California by Fresno, where he lives. Though he did live in Wisconsin, so he's got another gold star on his resume. We're talking about tyranny from Plato to Trump. A few more words that I want to say about this is you say that the issue, and that's why I want to talk about this, because we want to preserve truth. We want to preserve democracy. You said the basic problem is a lack of education about philosophy, theology, morality, and political thought has led to current programs that we're lacking enlightenment. I feel torn about this, and so I'd love you to make the strong argument in favor of what you said. Uh, Part of what I've seen is that people can have knowledge, and it does not guide their decisions. And so I think of particularly all of the kids who grew up knowing that smoking was bad for you, it's going to kill you, it's expensive, it harms the people around you, and they grow up morally coming home saying to their parents, no, you should stop smoking, this kind of thing, who when they hit 16, all of a sudden take up smoking. That has convinced me that education stops short of a very important part that we need. So make the case for education as the thing that we certainly need to prevent tyranny. Yeah, no, what you're asking here, Mark, is the perennial question is, how do we improve our souls? And (laughs) The answer is, you know, there's no recipe for that. I mean, we do our best. We struggle from day to day and week to week and year to year and generation to generation to make improvements. And I think we have to have a little hope that education can be effective, but education is not, it doesn't happen overnight for one, right? Children need 20 years of education. Adults need ongoing education. And then we make mistakes because human beings are flawed. We're not perfect. In the book, I refer to the tragedies, the Greek tragedies, and a tragic view of life, which is that there's a kind of fundamental brokenness in human nature. Education is one of the best things we can do to fix that brokenness, but it's not a perfect solution. Christians talk about sin as part of the brokenness, right? Other traditions talk about this in different ways. Notice the importance of education for a sort of secular or non-religious approach to fixing our problems. It's not that there's an external entity, a savior that's going to save us. It's that it's up to us to save ourselves. (laughs) But if we're flawed, how do we save ourselves, right? This is the real, real difficult problem. The Greek tradition teaches us that education is the solution. The founders also had this vision. You know, Thomas Jefferson famously says that the solution to the problems of democracy is more and better education. But in each case, it was flawed, right? Thomas Jefferson is a flawed individual. He owned slaves. The country was flawed when it was founded. The slavery was woven into the system. So we make small progress, incremental progress. And then tomorrow we have to go to work again and educate the new set of kids that comes through our system. It's the best we can do. And it's imperfect. Let me just, if you don't mind me saying one hopeful word here, is that we have made progress. We eliminated slavery. We granted women the right to vote. There is a good news story to be told about the American experiment. And a lot of that had to do with education. It's the abolitionists in the early 19th century that are writing books and pamphlets and educating the masses about the need to abolish slavery. It's the women's rights activists in the early part of the 20th century who are doing the same thing, you know. The civil rights movement works that way, right? It's a, not only a political campaign, but an educational campaign to get people to think differently. 
You know, that's my approach to things. Of course, I say that I'm a philosophy professor at a public university, right? My job depends on me. Believe job security. I can see it. Yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> my, my wife teaches fourth grade and it's a hard job in fourth grade. And she goes to work and sometimes comes home in tears. And the next day she's like, I'm going to do it better tomorrow. It's that kind of hard work. You know, it's, it's just, you got to get to work and the next generation needs us and they need us to believe in them. They need us to believe that they can do better than we did. I want to ask you a second level question on that. Again, I'm, I don't try and pin my guests down. That's not what spirit in action is about. And so it's not going to happen to Andrew Fiala either. So education is important to me. For me, it represented major improvement in my life. And I think in many ways, it allows us to function better in the world. Sometimes be more powerful because we have better engineers who know how to manipulate things. And I also believe that each generation has to learn its values. It has to learn its facts. Because the fact that I may have grown up knowing about the dangers of the Cold War and of Joseph McCarthy which I think was a form of tyranny on the way. So even though I know that, the fact that my son probably knows very little about Joseph McCarthy and McCarthyism, that's a problem. So I do see that. But I still find that, and this is why I want to challenge you again, you say that virtue is important, education about virtue. Well, virtue is different in each generation, of course. But the example I gave about kids who grow up who know the facts, the facts don't convince people. Somehow there's some moral, ethical underground that pinions them. I'm very disappointed, by the way, in the Christians who have rallied behind Trump in crazy numbers, as far as I can see. And I don't think it's just because of abortion. Because abortion is a moral issue on both sides, as far as I see it. So I can understand them being very concerned about abortion. But that doesn't seem to be what's really driving that team. So people with supposedly strong moral ethics are throwing them out the window, and I'm just blown away. So what really is the key to preserving our future? To You say it's education. Prove it to me. Come on. You can do it, Andrew. Well, you know, there's another solution too. Part of the solution also includes a legal system that restrains our worst impulses. Education alone is not going to work unless there also is a legal framework that prevents tyrants from grabbing power. So just put that on the table. Uh, We could come back back to that if you want. Again, think about the tragic problem for human beings, right? We're born knowing nothing. (laughs) And then we die before we can pass our wisdom on to the next. I mean, it's, it's an ongoing process. And there's part of us that is irrational. All of us. We all have this, moron, I call it the moronic tendency, right? We all have a tendency to be blind. And we need constant reminders to do the right thing. It's very, very difficult to be virtuous, to be good. Because there are temptations in the world, including our own laziness and indifference, you know, So it's, again, it's not a perfect solution, but it requires ongoing effort and then communities of practice that can help support us in these endeavors that can remind us when we fail. And if you don't mind me making your case for you, we also live in a world with terrible, terrible role models 
and really bad cultures of influence, right? So it's Hollywood and Facebook and all the social media world where negativity gets amplified and things that are good are ignored. There's something in our technology that tends to point in the wrong direction, I think, has to do with the algorithms at Facebook and how many people click on the ugly stuff, you know? Again, we all do this. We can't help ourselves. <laughs> We're fascinated by the bad, you know, even though we, that we should be focused on the good. So I hear where you're coming from. It's not enough to say, teach the children better. You know, in order to teach the children better, we also need to improve ourselves. And then we need to create environments and cultures where the uplifting message can be heard against the background of all of this negativity that we see, including, and I know we want to talk about violence too, but including a culture that celebrates and amplifies violence. It's disturbing. You know, kids are playing violent video games hours per day, and then they go to church on Sunday or they go to class on Monday, and the teacher says, you know, violence is bad. <laughs> you know, that's a voice yelling into the wind, right? The wind is pushing in this prevailing direction, and the educators are offering a counter message. And there's all kinds of problems that we can work on, right, in terms of amplifying better messages and holding back that negative wind. I am curious. I mean, I know you grew up Presbyterian. Uh, humanist is how you identify now. I'm Quaker, you know that. And I, I was raised Catholic, by the way. So we both have backgrounds that bring some of our fundamental values with us. What would you say is fundamental value that needs to be at the base of preserving us from tyranny? Because I, I think it's not so simple. You know, you say education. Well, you can be educated about how great Hitler is too, right? So what's at the base? What are the values, uh, ethics, religious, whatever you call it? It's a really difficult and important question. We disagree about values in the world. So you can't just say educate people in values because it's then, well, which values, right? The history of the world includes vast disagreements about value questions. Slavery is a really great example there. For me, I describe my values as enlightenment values. So this is the tradition that for me extends all the way back to Socrates, but especially comes to life in the philosophical traditions of the 17th, 18th century. I think those traditions are right. <laughs> It'd be a long conversation to explain why. But key values there include rationality, liberty, honesty, toleration for people who are different than ourselves. And I think there's a matrix of values that includes those things that are wise and good and defensible. Now, I know there are rival traditions, right? I've had conversations with folks about liberty. I mean, some people, they don't want it. They prefer authoritarian, totalitarian regimes where, you know, the strong man tells them what to do and freedom is difficult. But the tradition that I've inherited, that I've been immersed in and that I work to defend, says that human liberty is fundamental. That's why I think that a system like ours, a constitutional system that defends freedom of speech and freedom of religion in the first most important amendment to the Constitution, that for me is like right on, even though I know people disagree about it. So part of the educational endeavor as a philosopher is let's get our values on the table and then argue about whether or not these really are the values. But I've noticed in the background, you have to assume that arguing that rationality, that liberty are a value. A different approach to education, by the way, is authoritarian. The teacher at the front of the room with the ruler that'll slap you down if you don't agree. You know, I'm of a different mind about that. I, I would support liberal education that encourages people to explore ideas, to come to their own understanding about these values and argue 
And if we disagree, let's disagree reasonably. Let's make good arguments instead of beating each other with rulers. <laughs> Folks, we are speaking with Andrew Fiala. Tyranny from Plato to Trump, Fool, Sycophants, and Citizens is his latest book. I do want to shift gears now, Andrew. Talk about nonviolence a bit. Again, you've authored several books in this area. I want to talk about this book since it's the one that you sent to me that I've actually read. I can't comment on the others, but it's part of this immersion series that's put out by who? Tibi Davo. By Tibi Davo. It's a Spanish uh, publisher, and they, they publish bilingual editions in English and Spanish. So we're going to talk about the topic, but actually, as a way of getting there, I want to go to the article that you wrote for Sky Only. It's the article called Russian Invasion. Does nonviolent resistance have a role to play in Ukraine? I can't tell you how many people who have been nonviolent devotees, friends of mine, who said, well, if I was only younger and was available, I would sign up to go fight with Ukraine. So in the face of actual war, nonviolence, you know, that doesn't work. Let's go do what's going to make a difference here because it's too late. So why don't you recap for us what was in that article? Well, first, it's a very difficult question, and you have to be very cautious, I think, in thinking about all of this. It's so complicated. So jump in on this. One issue is the question of who has to be nonviolent where? I mean, obviously, the the first most important thing is that the Russian army needs to stop what they're doing, right? The invading aggressor, they're at fault, they're to blame, they need to be nonviolent. All the accusations of war crimes, etc., that's against Russia. Now, related to that is the question of who has the authority and responsibility to stop the Russian army. It's the Russian people that have that responsibility, right? So, I think there's an obligation on the part of the Russians to tell their military, stop it. (laughs) Of course, easy to say, right? And we've seen, so there have been attempts in Russia, nonviolent protests against militarism in Russia. And what's happened is that those protesters have been rounded up in the thousands and thrown in jail. They've lost their jobs. It is not easy to be a nonviolent anti-war protester in Russia. On top of that, there's disinformation and nationalism and patriotism. I've talked with scholars and others who are involved, both Ukrainian and and Russian. It's difficult. The fog of war has entered in and propaganda and authoritarianism in Russia make this very, very difficult. Now, second half of that question, are we to say then to the Ukrainians to not fight? I would never say that. (laughs) It's not my business what they do. And I certainly can see the case for a justified war against the Russian invaders. Once we're in the war, almost all the moral questions are just convoluted and complicated. No one should say to the Ukrainians, lay down and let the tanks roll over you. That would be absurd, especially as an outsider in the, I'm not going to judge them or offer any suggestion about that. Let me then back out for a second. What the nonviolent tradition and the pacifist tradition remind us of is that part of the solution happens before the war breaks out. Maybe the more important part happens then. It's about constructing a world in which tanks don't roll into cities. It's about constructing a world where there are laws and moral character that prevent this kind of thing from happening in the first place. All my friends in the peace community and the folks working on nonviolence It's not for us to say what Ukraine can or cannot do. 
what we need to now do is think about how do we create a better world after this conflict, out of this conflict, so this kind of stuff doesn't happen again. And that, I think, is often lost because there's this really narrow, well, what do we do today about the bombing of Mariupol or whatever? It's too late. You know, the bombs are falling. And in that case, we're in the middle of an emergency, an analogy that I might use, you know, once the hurricane hits, we just have to survive, right? It's a matter of survival. But before the next hurricane, we need to build better levees and better storm infrastructure. And we need to come up with a better system of predicting the weather. I think the nonviolence and peace communities, that's where the focus needs to be. But of course, there's this argument against nonviolence and peace communities, which is that, well, that means you don't care or you're, you're not living in the real world. And frankly, the real world is big and broad, and we need to we need to make the real world more peaceful. Well, I thought your article was spot on in so many ways. Again, this is from Only Sky. Russian invasion does nonviolent resistance have a role to play in Ukraine? By Andrew Fiala, our guest here today for Spirit in Action. You talk about the power of nonviolence, even within a violent situation. You talk about the mothers, the non-Jewish wives of Jewish men who Hitler was, you know, you got to send them off, kill them all, deport them all, who right there in Berlin in the midst of World War II, they camped out and they got a reversal of the deportation of their husbands. They were able to do that. I think everyone's thought would be they would just be gunned down by Hitler. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, nonviolence has its power even in the worst situations. Yes. And notice that example. That's about the analogy is that's the Russian people, right? The Russian people who need to be protesting against the Russian government. That example, famous example. There's other examples, sort of the Danish resistance to Hitler. When you study the history of nonviolence and successful nonviolent campaigns, even in the midst of brutality and hostility, there is some hope that this can be effective. But again, it depends who's doing what with regard to whom and what is the power structure, right? You could think about American civil rights movement where nonviolence was also effective, the Gandhian Satyagraha where nonviolence was effective, but it's complicated and it's going to be different for different people. And you have to be willing to think about the risks, the benefits, and who has a responsibility to do what in that environment. The Gandhi example teaches us that there are all kinds of strategies that can be employed, non-cooperation, boycotts, campaigns of civil disobedience. Martin Luther King and James Lawson learned this from Gandhi. And these things have to be tweaked and put into place in different circumstances in different ways. And again, I think there's something to be learned from the history of nonviolence that could be applied even in present conflicts. I mean, one thing we can do, you know, you said earlier, some of your friends were like, I would go sign up to fight in Ukraine. That's interesting. What could we do for the anti-war protesters in Russia? What could we do to support them and get their message out and make sure that they have accurate information about what's going on, what their sons are doing in the war that they're fighting against Ukraine? There's so much disinformation. The Russian church should be called to account for this because my understanding is that the patriarch of the Russian church, Kirill, is kind of in support of Putin and the war against Ukraine, including a history of Ukraine and Ukrainian church that is, my understanding is that it's false, what the Russian church is teaching about the Ukrainian church. By the way, I think Pope Francis has said something similar recently. You know, it's these non-governmental institutions like the church that are going to have some power here. What if we could convince the Russian patriarch, the Russian church to come up with a different story? 
that could be powerful, I think. I think it's probably worthwhile that you toss in a few of the observations of the studies of Erica Chenoweth, because most people make the deeply flawed assumption that nonviolence doesn't have a place in the midst of tyrants. And I think we'd all agree, I don't know if they agree within Russia, that Putin is a tyrant, isn't he? I think he's in that direction. He may be the closest model we've got. One question I have about Putin is whether he's, he really just is self-interested. Is this war and is Putin's regime all about Putin? Or is he a misguided nationalist who thinks that what he's doing is actually morally justifiable and you know historically justifiable? I don't know enough about Putin and his personality to say what the answer is there. But notice there will be a difference in terms of our response. If Putin is a Russian nationalist who's interested in the well-being of Russia, then we can negotiate with him. We can provide incentives that might motivate him one way or another if he's a rational agent. If he's a tyrant who is just concerned with his own ego, you can't negotiate with those people. They're operating in a different world than the world of rational negotiation. One thought, one worry I have is that the sanctions that are being imposed just have caused Putin to double down on his mischief, right? I'm not sure that he's gotten the message that the world is trying to encourage him back into like normal diplomatic affairs. And tyrants often don't get the message. Back to the bully on the schoolyard, right? You can threaten the bully with, you're going to have to stay after school, (laughs) some kind of punishment. But if the bully is just inflamed with rage and pride, the bully doesn't respond to those punishments and disincentives. So, you know, interesting question about Putin. I presume the smart guys in the State Department are really focused and careful on the moral psychology of Vladimir Putin. All of us, I think, need to pay better attention and learn more about this. I do want to follow up with just a few more questions. I know we're nearing the end of the time that we'll have together, Andrew. Talking about nonviolence, one of the important distinctions that maybe needs to be made is those people who do nonviolence based on moral, principled, ethical nonviolence versus pragmatic nonviolence. And again, Erica Chenoweth, her study basically says that overall, nonviolence is more effective than violence. We tend to see our world through violent eyes, that when the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. We tend to have that belief. But she did. She was actually a convert to nonviolence when she set about to prove that it, it was less effective. That wasn't what the facts led her to. Yeah. So again, pragmatic versus moral, principled, ethical nonviolence. Yeah, it's uh, an important distinction. The kind of studies that you're pointing to, Erica Chenoweth and others who have studied this stuff, it's not that it always works. So, you know, one thing, you know, people are like, well, if it doesn't always work, let's not use it. That's a silly kind of false dilemma. And then there's a question of what kinds of strategic or practical nonviolence and how effective are each of the techniques. It actually requires a very complicated social science approach to figure out what works and to what extent. What are the cost-benefit analyses? All of this is complicated. So we need our colleagues in political science, sociology, and other fields to really give us the data on that. And I think you're right that I've seen, read these studies, Chenoweth and others, that show that nonviolence can be effective. It can be less costly. And let me add this in too, that those studies also tend to say that nonviolence is useful for democratic social movements. 
So violence tends to be the tool of tyrannical authoritarian regimes. If you want to put into place an authoritarian regime, use some violence. <laughs> but if you want to create democracy and if you want to defend human rights and you want to create a world of human flourishing, from my view, then the data seems to say that nonviolence is a very useful tool. Maybe not the only tool, but one very important tool. Now, a different part of this, as you say, is a, is a more committed, shall we call it philosophical or spiritual commitment to pacifism. I would use the word pacifism on that side of things. And you see this in spiritual traditions, Mennonite, Quaker, other traditions will kind of have a deep commitment to peace and peaceful means. Tolstoy wrote about this. Gandhi seems to have this in mind. Martin Luther King certainly gives voice to this. James Lawson, who worked closely with King, often talks about this, these things. What's going on on that side is a commitment to the idea that the universe, God or whatever, morality, requires us to be committed to peaceful means to produce peaceful ends, that there's a unity between the means and the ends, and that when we use violent means aiming towards peaceful ends, there's a contradiction and a conflict in our values. So what I admire about that, what's called comprehensive nonviolence or principled pacifism, is this idea that we need consistency in our behaviors and attitudes, that if, if we're aiming at peace, we need to use peaceful means to get there. I admire that. And I think both sides can learn from the other, right? The strategic or practical nonviolence, it doesn't really care about that moral equation. And then on the side of principled peace, you can reinforce that view by pointing out that, in fact, nonviolence does work, especially it does work to produce democratic outcomes. There's so much more we could talk about, Andrew, and unfortunately, we won't have the time to do it all. Folks, I want to remind you again, we've been talking about specifically two books today, Tyranny from Plato to Trump, Fool Sycophants and Citizens by Andrew Fiala. I also brief mentioned, and it deserves so much more time, Nonviolence, A Quick Immersion by Andrew as well. I've got links to him on the NortonSpiritRadio.org website. Please follow up and read some more of his books. You're going to be wiser, and I think it will help preserve our democracy and peace in the world as well. And that includes for helping out in the Ukraine, etc. So, Andrew, there's so much good here. I appreciate you pursuing that, teaching it, doing that vital step of education. I'm glad that Wisconsin was able to send some wisdom over to California where you teach. And I look forward to talking to you in the future. Thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you very much for having me on. It was a pleasure talking with you. The links are all on NordenSpiritRadio.org, folks. We'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on NordenSpiritRadio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every